So today we're in Luke 10, looking at verses 1 through 12 and then verses 17 through 20. So that's Luke 10, 1 through 12 and verses 17 through 20. I've titled the message, The Proto-Great Commission. The Proto-Great Commission. If you are in reading literature or history, things like that, you know the word proto is the word old. So we've got the the original, the, the former Great Commission. That's the question. Is that what this text is about? My answer is yes. This is the Proto-Great Commission. This is a early version of it, but this is not the Great Commission. This is not what we have as our marching orders. So that's, that's my thesis up front. My point today is that this text is not entirely normative for the New Testament Christian, but was a uni- unique part of Jesus's training and his ministry with his early disciples. So this was not, this is not an entirely normative text for every believer today, but was an early part of the training of his disciples. Now, now that you know that, you hopefully will have answers to the following questions, but we must consider a few questions. When you read this text, and if you view it as the Great Commission instead of the Proto-Great Commission, instead of an earlier version of the Great Commission, you would want to ask the following questions. This is all related to the field of missiology, so in missions today, in church planting today. What are we supposed to be doing as a church? Is the person of peace required? Is a person of peace required? Secondly, should locals also foot the bill for the ministry? Thirdly, should we expect to frequently cast out demons? Fourthly, are we commanded to heal the sick? Or was this message part of a verification of their ministry? These actions were these all, these all part of the verification of their ministry as one sent by Christ to proclaim in part the breaking in of the kingdom of God, particularly in a setting where they did not have access to the word of God. They did not have translations of scriptures, but these are preachers traveling out to go tell them things that they did not know. Now, I've divided the text into two sides. Those sides which I would consider probably normative and probably not normative. When I say normative, I mean like we're expected to do this. And we're not expected to, to do this. There are things which are descriptive and things which are prescriptive in the Bible, things that we're supposed to do and things that they did that we're not supposed to do or not instructed to do. So I have started here. We'll start with the probably normative side. On the left side, we have the probably normative. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. I believe that... It is important that the Lord appoints, that we are not self-appointed, that we are not self-sent. What this looks like practically in the New Testament church is that when you are going as a missionary, going as a pastor, church planter, that you are sent, that you are not saying, okay, I have decided that I need to become a pastor, and I know that no other Christian on the planet agrees with me, but trust me, they're all wrong and I'm all right. I'm really supposed to be doing this. That's the wrong approach. That's that's not the way 
But instead, you see even in the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 13, that that church in Antioch was gathered for worship. And in that service, in that time, I'm not sure how exactly this happened, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit called certain people from them to be sent as missionaries. It is essential for Christians today who desire to be missionaries or pastors or church planners that they not be self-appointed, but that the Lord has truly sent them and truly appointed them to do this. Pastoring, ministry, church planning, these things are not uh, just one of many options for a person or, or even the only option for a person who has no other skills, but actually there is this, this fire in your bones that you have to preach and that the local church recognizes that. It is similar to the person who says, no, I'm supposed to be a leader. I'm a leader, I'm a leader, I'm a leader. And they keep using that word leader, but you look at them and you see no one is following them. Nobody actually recognizes them as a leader, but they've, they're a self-appointed leader. I believe that it is normative that the Lord appoints and the Lord calls people into ministry. Now, he does this practically. Uh, there's a friend of mine that I'm talking to about possibly moving to New York to be a part of the church, help us out, and things of that nature. And he's like, well, I'm waiting on the Lord's leading. I'm like, what do you think the Lord's leading is going to look like? Is it going to be writing in the sky? Is it going to be like, you know, hey, hey, Tom, you need to go to New York, like in the clouds? Or is it going to be humans, people saying, hey, come and help us? I think it is the latter. The second part. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. I believe that if the Lord is sending us to go, then he will come as well. I, I don't, I, I'm not a fan of this, this type of martyr complex missions where you, res, you, you take the rejection of the world and literally no fruit whatsoever as evidence that this is God's blessing and God's call because you preached and everyone rejected you. I think that Jesus is coming where he sends his people. It is not necessarily to the same degree in every place. The Lord has told us that if we preach his word, if Christ has preached, he will draw people. He will draw all men to himself. We know that the Lord has many people in this city. And so if the Lord has appointed us and if he has sent us, then he too will be coming with us. And then the third thing that I think is probably normative is the number two by two. Now, I didn't say that the 72 is normative. We're not having to go out in teams of 72 that are divided up into in half with groups of 36, but rather that he is sending them out two by two. The idea of team ministry is the biblical norm. This is the biblical norm. You see the Apostle Paul working with teams of people throughout his ministry. He's, he's not alone. He's not this rogue guy who says, God has called me and I'm going to do this. Forget about the church. Forget about the people of God. Forget about anyone else. I'm going to go do my own thing. We do not believe in the autonomy of the missionary. We do not believe in the self-rule of the individual, but that it, it is actually through a local church, through elders. This is why we do things like ordination, when a man is ordained, he has a council of, of pastors and elders who have 
examined his doctrine, examined his life, and they affirm, yes, this, this man really is called. And then the church affirms that. The church calls that person also into the ministry. And then ideally, ministry is not in the solo form, but there is a team to it. The third thing that I think is normative is verse 2. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are are few. I think this is obviously self-evidently true. And it is true in every place and time. Therefore, next, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I believe that is also normative. We should pray and ask the Lord to send people as laborers into his harvest. And then the last set, go your way, behold, verse 3, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. True, yes, there are lots of wolves, and these wolves devour sheep. And yes, that was true in Jesus' day and during the apostolic era, but it was also true in the early church. And you see that as a record throughout church history. This is the reason why so many uh, false religions and cults and heresies were developed during the early church. Just a word on this, the early church is not some like um, golden age of the church that is to be idolized, but rather, no, it's, it's a part of church history that we learn from. Not everything they did was right, not everything they did was wrong. But there were lots and lots of heresies in the early church. So we shouldn't be saying, oh, if only we could get back to the way the early church was. That would be a very difficult church to be a part of. So we should be content being in the time and place that we are, but we need to recognize that even though, that, that just as there were wolves during Jesus' day and Paul's day, and then in the first couple centuries in the early church, so it has been throughout history, and it is even today in New York City. This is the case. And if you don't have that category in your mind, you're going to be confused. You're not going to understand why churches are the way they are. Why the last 24 months have gone the way they've gone. Why the the op-eds that are written in the New York Times and the New York Post and all these various other places by Christian leaders are bent the way they're bent. It's because there are wolves today. And these wolves are not always in sheep's clothing. Sometimes these wolves are in wolf clothing. And we need to be aware of that. Sometimes, sometimes a wolf comes up to you and it's like, yeah, this looks like a wolf. It walks like a wolf and talks like a wolf. And it is a wolf. And we can't be so naively optimistic. Where we look someone square in the face and they lie to us again and again and again. And we just keep saying, oh, no, no, no. It's not really like that. There are wolves, and these wolves devour sheep. A wolf in a sheep's clothing is a terrible thing, as has been said many times in many places, that a wolf in sheep's clothing didn't get that on its own. He had to kill a sheep to get it. But we also have wolves in wolf clothing, and they also devastate the flock. And it is even more shameful when a wolf who is obviously a wolf destroys a flock, because that means... Shepherds were even more negligent. The job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep and also shoot the wolves, drive away the wolf. That's the reason why they have a rod and a staff. A staff is for guiding and caring for and comforting the sheep, but then a rod is actually an offensive weapon for killing wolves. 
This is a theme throughout the New Testament, or the Old Testament too, but in, it's, it's more literal in David's time. <laughs> this comes to the end of what I believe is probably normative. This is also a very unusual outline, so if you're looking for one, good luck. Secondly, we have what I believe is probably not normative, and that is for a variety of reasons, which we'll go into as we go through it. Verse 4, carry no money bag. Carry no money bag. So the question is raised, are we supposed to carry no money bag? Because Jesus told the disciples to carry no money bag. So does this mean no wallet, no credit cards, no bank accounts, no money? You just, just go to be a missionary and you get to the airport and you're like, I'm supposed to be a missionary and you need to let me on this airplane. The answer is no. That is not that is not normative. No knapsack. So no backpack, no luggage, no nothing. You just you're going. No sandals. So is it wrong for Christians to wear shoes? If you've been like in in the the reform circles and the baptist circles people don't do this kind of stuff. But I have heard of and seen people in maybe like more charismatic circles where they like just 20-year-old guys who, like, they think they're John the Baptist, they don't shave, they just have long, like, flowing hair, and they walk around without shoes on. And you ask them why this is, they're like, oh, I haven't worn a pair of shoes in five years, because it says, don't wear shoes. I'm going on this mission. I'm here to preach the gospel. Um, the Apostle Paul, the... <laughs> The, the Apostle Paul says in his letters, he says certain things. Now, I, I don't rem- remember that he said, bring my shoes, but I know he said, bring my coat. Bring me my coat. I'm in jail and it's cold. Paul writes letters asking churches such as the Philippians to take up a collection and send it. He thanks them for their financial support. Jesus and his disciples had a certain one of the 12 who was the, the, the guy who held the money bag. They clearly had belongings, they clearly had possessions, but there's something special happening in this place and in this time. And Jesus gathers these 70 or 72 people, depending on what the correct number is, and he gives them these instructions. And he says, no money bag, no backpack, no shoes. Also, another thing that I think is clearly not normative is greet no one on the road. He told them, don't talk to anybody on the road. We're, that, that's not our rule, okay? We can talk to people on the streets. We can talk to people in the airport. We can greet people on the road. That's a good thing to do. Verse 5, whenever you enter, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Like It's okay to come into my house without saying, peace be to this house. It's okay to go into places without saying, peace be to this house. Verse 6, if a, if a son of peace, or what missiologists would call a person of peace, is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So what's happening in these verses is the idea, these people have been sent out, they've been sent out with nothing, and they are to find people to take care of them. So they go... They find someone, they knock on the door of the house, they say, peace be to this house, and that person receives them. says, oh, yeah, yeah, come in. And then that's this person of peace. It's designed to be the person who sort of opens up the doorway for you into the community. But you're also supposed to live with them. And they're supposed to feed you and take care of you and, and all of this. 
Verse 8, whatever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Just eat whatever they give you. Sorry, food allergies, personal taste. No, you eat what they give you. Verse 9, also probably not normative. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What happens if you don't have the ability to heal the sick? Are you in sin? Is it sinful, is it sinful for you to not heal the sick? Now, is this an illustration of meeting physical needs? Is this saying, okay, you have to go out into the community and take a survey and a needs assessment and find out what the problems are in the community. And let's say, let's say you're in New York. And in New York, we kind of have everything within about a two-block radius. Like, if you can imagine it, you can get it in two minutes. So you talk to the people in the community and you say, hey, what do you, what do you need in this community? And you're like, well, I don't really need much. Oh, but it would be nice to have a playground for the kids. And you're like, oh, well, okay, let's get them a playground because that's what they say they need. They need a place to exercise and play and it needs to be safe and have a nice little soft floor and all that stuff. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? I don't think so. I don't think that that is normative, but I think that there is something else happening in this scenario, in this story. Verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to your feet or our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So that raises the question, are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to, if someone rejects us, someone, anyone, the first person, are we then supposed to pronounce a curse on them? Wipe the dust off our feet and say, it's going to be worse for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Is, is, that, is that our task? My answer through this section is no. I do not believe that it is because I believe that what's happening in this story is a unique setting and unique series of events for a unique place and time, which is why I'm calling this the Proto-Great Commission, not the forgotten, overlooked Great Commission that if the church would just employ, if we would just do these things, then we would get it right. Rather, I think something else is happening here. There is a textual debate over what the number should be in verse 1. If you look in your Bibles, you might see a little footnote next to the word 72. Some manuscripts say 70 and others say 72. Commentator Stein says, Whichever one is chosen, however the, number, uh, however, the number suggests one for each nation in the world, Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, there's a table of the nations, there's 70 nations or 72 nations listed. And he's saying that the, these people represent the nations. I'm not so sure about that, but hang on and we'll continue. No shortage of speculation exists about the significance of the number of disciples sent out. Wilcox mentions this briefly in his commentary on the subject. He says, quote, We might distinguish the two symbolic numbers by saying that 12 equals the patriarchs of Israel, equals the, the apostles, while 70 represents the people of Israel and represents the church in general. In addition, the marching orders for the 70 are by their very nature applicable to every Christian. Exceptional people are not required. It is the message they carry and the driving power that carries them which are exceptional. 
Close quote. When we read these verses, they do instinctively suggest a shift is taking place from a special commission for the Twelve to a more ordinary calling for Jesus' followers at large. If you say, wait a second, Andy, you said this is not normative. Well, you're listening, and I'm glad, so hold on. Just keep listening. The commentator Edwards says both, or he explains, both the numerical discrepancies and the thematic agenda Uh, He explains this by taking this interpretation in the opposite direction of the commentators we just mentioned. Quote, A particular strength of this interpretation is that it accounts for both the disputed figures. For Genesis 10 contains 70 nations in the Masoretic text and 72 nations in the Septuagint. So, if you're a biblical scholar or whatever, you know that there's the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, and those are kind of the two main versions of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew text, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so one says 70, the other says 72, and that that would explain why we have both numbers appearing in the translation of Luke 10, both 70 and 72, depending on which manuscript. But that explanation falters thematically in my judgment, for the mission of the 72 in Luke 10 is not directed to the Gentiles. That's a key. You got to notice that. Jesus is sending these people, these 70 to 72, he's sending them out to Israel, not to the nations at large, not to the Gentiles. We know this because the towns that are mentioned in verses 13 through 15 are in, for example, Galilee. The the commentator goes on, I am more inclined to find a prefigurement of Luke 10 in God's command to Moses in Numbers 11, which is to anoint elders or 70 elders in Numbers 11, 16, but perhaps 72 with the addition of Eldad and Medad in verses 26 and 29 of Numbers 11. And to choose these, to anoint these elders with the power of the Spirit in order to share and extend the ministry of Moses. The narratives of Luke of Numbers 11 and Luke 10 are both initiated by the Lord. You see that in Luke 10 and Numbers 11. And both texts closely identify the 70 or 72 with the Holy Spirit and with the mission of Moses and the mission of Jesus. If Edwards is on the right track with this view, this text may be more applicable to promoting the concept of a plurality of elders in the church rather than redefining the Great Commission. Because that's the question. Is, is he re- redefining the Great Commission or is something else happening? The historian Eusebius has a fascinating section on this, which I've included below. I'll read it because you're not reading my paper. The Disciples of Our Savior. Eusebius was a very early uh, church historian in Christianity, I think in the second or third century. He says this, The names of the apostles of our Savior are known to everyone from the Gospels. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all know the names. But there exists no category or no catalog of the 70 disciples. Barnabas indeed is said to have been one of them of whom the Acts of the Apostles makes mention in various places, and especially Paul in his epistle to the Galatians. They say that Sosthenes also, who wrote wrote to the Corinthians with Paul, was one of them. This is the account of Clement in the fifth book of his 
hypotyposis, in which he also says that Cephas was one of the 70 disciples, a man who bore the same name as the apostle Peter. And this is very interesting. And the one concerning whom Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Have you ever even thought that the one that Paul corrected wasn't the apostle Peter, but was a different Peter? That's what he says it was. Matthias also, who was numbered with the apostles in the place of Judas, and the one who was honored by being a candidate with him, are likewise said to have been deemed worthy of the same calling with the seventy. They said that Thaddeus also was one of them, concerning whom I shall presently relate an account, which has come down to us. And upon examination, you will find that our Savior had more than seventy disciples." According to the testimony of Paul, who says that after his resurrection from the dead, he appeared first to Cephas, then the twelve, and after them to about five hundred brethren at once, of whom some had fallen asleep, but the majority were still living at the time he wrote. Afterwards, he says, he appeared unto James, who was one of the so-called brethren of our Savior. But since in addition to these, there were many others who were called apostles in imitation of the twelve, as was Paul himself. He adds, afterwards he appeared to all the apostles, so much in regard to these persons, Eusebius of Caesarea. So that's the historian Eusebius. Now, along with this train of thought, Edwards' train of thought, Edwards also notes that the requirements given to the 70 were more rigorous than those given to the 12 disciples or the church. The church, the 12, and the 70 are three different groups. Their expectations, their requirements, their rules, as it were, are not all the same. His next line is very powerful. Quote, if they go with an elaborate support apparatus then they will not be believable. They will be believable only to the extent that they go out, uh, that they go on want and thus in dependence on the Lord of the harvest and the kingdom that they proclaim. So if they go out with the support apparatus, which is a money bag, um, extra pair of shoes, all these things, then their audience will be less inclined to believe them. But if they're going out and saying, hey, I'm coming to preach you that kingdom of God has come. And they're thinking, wow, I sure hope somebody believes. Because if nobody believes, I'm not eating tonight. One significant difficulty for the view that this text is not a proto-great commission, but rather is closer to the institution of a plurality of elders, is Jesus' words in verse 2. Jesus says, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. While it may be that this is about elders, it seems more natural to read it in a traditional view, that of missionaries. Close quote. Bach helpfully explains the differences between this text and our calling as ordinary Christians by making some observations about the uniqueness of this era in salvation history, which it describes. Now, again, for the theologians in the room, you're like, wait, this sounds like dispensationalism. You have to recognize that both covenant theology and dispensationalism have both covenants and dispensations. So a covenant theologian would read this and be like, yeah, that was a different era. And a dispensationalist reading this would say, yeah, that was a different era. 
So understanding that the call to the 12 or the call to the 70 is different from the call to the church, that doesn't necessarily put you in one camp or another. That's a matter of other questions and other topics, which puts you in different camps. So Bach. Bach helpfully explains the difference between this text and our calling as ordinary Christians by making some observations about the uniqueness of this era in salvation history, which this text describes. His comments on the gift of healing are helpful. Quote, These disciples appear to have been given authority that was unique to this initial period of gospel proclamation. But to say that does not entail a denial that God can heal today. The Christian discussion over healing does not center on questions of God's ability or sovereignty, whether God heals today or whether the Spirit is active today. None of those things are actually what is involved in that question. The question is whether the gifts of healing are present today. A genuine gift of healing should evidence a level of consistency that is like that of the New Testament gifted healers. So, I did an, an interview yesterday, or the day before, sometime, um, for a friend of mine who's making a new film called Cessationist. He's like, Andy, are you a cessationist? I said, well, what do you mean by cessationist? Some people who are very sloppy in their language will say, oh, well, it means you believe the gifts have ceased. No, that's not what it means. It means that the miraculous gifts have ceased. The sign gifts have ceased. So healings, speaking in tongues, prophesying the future. Those are the three that immediately come to mind. I do not believe that the gift of healing is active today. I do not believe that the gift of speaking in un unknown languages or untrained languages, I don't believe that that is active today. And I don't believe that the uh, gift of telling the future is active today. And I'm using those explanations and those terms and labels to try and make it more clear because that's often where the debate arises. And Well, what do you mean by tongues? What do you mean by prophecy? But what I mean by tongues and prophecy is that tongues are real languages that you didn't already know and that um, prophecy is telling the future, not just preaching. So, if the gift of healing was still active today, what that would look like is it would look like what you see in the Bible, where people come up to Jesus, he touches them and heals them. People come up to the apostles, they touch them and heal them. That's not active today. It's just not. If it was, the hospitals would be empty. No one would have died of COVID or anything else but rather there would be people standing at the door saying, no, I have the gift of healing and I'm just going to heal you so you can turn around and go back home. You don't even need to go in the hospital. But that is not the same as praying for healing. The book of James makes it very clear. We're supposed to pray for healing. And that is not, that's not where the line is between cessationism and continuationism. The line between these two sides is whether or not the gift of healing continues today, not whether or not God can heal or whether or not God can answer prayer. Both sides believe that he can heal and that he can and does answer prayer. If these miraculous gifts ceased with the close of the canon and the close of the apostolic era, and the modern church is called to depend solely on the Holy Spirit working through the word of God, it should be no wonder that while 
general principles can be derived from Luke 10, it should not be taken as an overlooked manual for ministry that if we would only rediscover, then we could have effective ministry. If only we would rediscover healing people and mercy ministry and casting out demons, then we could have effective ministry. No, I believe that this was a special message for a special time in history, the apostolic era. Bach continues, those who claim to possess the gift of healing today or to have seen it exercised, they don't testify to consistent healing rates. I remember hearing one prominent believer who claimed to have access to such gifts, and he said that his healing rate was about 2% among the very serious conditions that he had prayed for. This rate is similar to what I myself have experienced with no claim to have a special healing gift. To argue that the healing gift continues, but that the rate of healing today differs significantly from that of the first century, is inconsistent. Quote, gifts that are highly inconsistent are probably not gifts. Gifts God can and does heal. Healing can and should be prayed for, as James 5, 13 through 18 suggests. A few successes, however, do not indicate that the gift of healing or of exorcism is present. I believe that demon possession and demon oppression both exist. They both happen, and they both happen in New York City. I have seen demon-possessed people. I've encountered them. But I don't think that I have the ability to just cast out a demon. But I do believe I should follow the teaching of Scripture in relationship to the demonic, which would look a lot like following Ephesians' armor of God passage. I don't believe I'm, I or people in our church should take up the title of exorcist. Though in the early church, shortly after the apostolic era, there was the office of exorcist in the church. This was a thing for hundreds of years. Um, without, without seeking to split hairs, I, this is all box quote, without seeking to split hairs, I suggest that the difference is important and worthy of reflection. We can agree that the sovereign God is active and present without confusing that God's activity with the bestowal of a specific gift. Close quote. Back to some of the simpler questions. What if you go into a town and they don't receive you? If you go into a town, if you go preach and hand out tracts in Union Square, Washington Square Park, or whatever, is it really worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah? God sent fire from heaven to burn up Sodom and Gomorrah. He unleashed a volcanic eruption on them. Or, Is there something unique happening in this story where the disciples are sent out to the towns across Israel to witness to the inbreaking of the Messianic age in order to testify that Christ has come? Now, all that being said, there is truth. There is a general principle to the idea of moving on when people won't receive your message. So yes, shake the dust off your feet. Yes, move on. Don't waste your life preaching to a group of people that really would rather you not preach to them. Because the fact remains that there are the elect of God scattered across the world and we're supposed to be getting them. We don't know who they are. 
There's no special glory in being a glutton for punishment or beating yourself up in the name of ministry. Now, Bach endorses the idea of word and deed ministry, but has a helpful clarification on the language of the kingdom that is contained here. Quote, to say that the kingdom has arrived is not to say that everything associated with it has come. It is clear from texts like Acts 1 and Acts 3 that more is to be expected in the kingdom program. So the kingdom has come, it has begun, but there's more yet to come. Proclamation and healing form a verbal and pictorial picture, or a picture, a union of word and deed that evidence the truth of the disciples' message. So you ask, why were they doing word and deed? Well, it's to verify the truthfulness of the message. It's to prove that what they're, they're saying is true because they've got the goods to back it up. They're not just saying stuff, but they can prove with miracles that this is the age, the messianic age. Such a mixture of word and deed is powerful testimony today, even when the deed is an act of compassion rather than a miracle. When we proclaim God's love and show God's compassion concretely, the word takes on a dimension that it otherwise might lack. Close quote. Now, that is simple enough, but also kind of complex. If you know us and you know what we're all about, this idea of word and deed. John Stott said it's like two wings on an airplane. I don't think that's the right analogy. I don't think it's two, two wings on an airplane. I don't think that they're 50-50. I don't think they're equal to each other. But rather, I think, I'm not sure what the proper analogy would be, but I, I think that it may be like a, a tree or something, that it has its roots, it has its foundation, and then it has its fruit that comes out of it. But you're not flying with these two things, and then without one, the airplane crashes. Rather, your foundation is the doctrine, the teaching, theology. The doctrine is the foundation for this. You see that in like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 comes and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we have first, the gospel. Second, after that, we have the fruit of the gospel. We have the outworking of the transformed life. So these are not parallel to each other. There's actually one is the foundation and then the other that comes after that. For more nuanced and complex discussion about what types of ministry or mercy ministry is appropriate for us here today in New York City. We can have conversations about that outside of this sermon, but that could fill a whole series. Back to our text. We, we were in Luke 10, 1 through 12. Now, let's look at the final three verses, verses 17 through 20. The 17 returned. They came back. They went away on this, this preaching tour, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, Jesus, said to them, you can kind of, like, there's some cynicism in his voice. There's some sarcasm coming from Jesus in this. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In other words, he's saying, who do you think you are? Like, I just sent you guys out and you're coming back and you're like all puffed up and arrogant. I saw Satan fall from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that. Don't think you're a big shot because you could do some miracles. He's rebuking them in this. Rather, rather than rejoicing in those things, you should rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, this whole message has been a bit technical in the sense of of the things that they argue about in missions classes and seminaries. But let me ask you, and you're here today, and you're like, Andy, I'm not going to go be a missionary. That's just not what I'm here for. Let me ask you this. Is your name written in the book of life? Is your name written in heaven? Are you saved? Are you born again? Are you headed for heaven? Or are you headed for hell? Which one is it? It's, it's, a, it's a binary set of options. And this is a matter that concerns each person. Is your name written in heaven? You can know that you're born again. You can know that you are saved. You can know that you're headed for heaven. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can be saved. But when you're saved, you're trusting in Christ. You're not trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in your works, your goodness, your performance, your repentance, your faith. You're trusting in Jesus. So if I asked you, how do you know? Are you saved? And you say, well, I don't know. And I say, well, what do you, what do you believe? Why, why should God let you into heaven? And you say, oh, well, he should let me into heaven because I this or that. I, was, I grew up in church. I was baptized. I, I even believed. That's the wrong direction to take this. The right direction is to say, well, Jesus actually doesn't, he's not obligated to let me in heaven. I'm, God doesn't owe heaven to me, but, because I'm a sinner, but Jesus died for sinners. He rose again for sinners. And I'm a sinner. Therefore, I'm qualified. I'm counting on him and his access for me. I'm unworthy of this. Jesus is worthy of this. So I'm trusting in him. I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. My confidence, my hope, my dependence, it's all on him. It's all on Christ alone. That's the source and grounds of your assurance. That's the the grounds of your acceptance before God. That's the way you get your name written in heaven. It's not by baptism. If you get hit by a truck on your way to church to go get baptized, it's, it's not hell for you because the water hadn't hit you yet. It's also not your gifts or your abilities. It's not your service. It's not the things that you do. It's not your even works for Jesus. If you say, oh, well, I gave lots of money to charities or I served in the soup kitchen or I did all these things that were nice. I cast out demons. Jesus says, no, don't. Don't place your your confidence, your joy, your trust, your hope in that, but rejoice that your names 
are written in heaven. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that, you that we can read it, that we can study it and understand it. Help us to do that more and more. Help us to know you and to walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would take the word that has been preached and apply it to the hearts of each person. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.